you have your Bibles, I'd appreciate it if you would open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. And since we've been out of Ecclesiastes for uh, a few weeks, I wanted to take a moment to remind you of the, some of the things that we've been learning throughout the study of this book. Uh, first of all, we don't know exactly who wrote Ecclesiastes because the uh, author never directly gives us his name. He introduces himself as the teacher. He introduces himself as the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. And most scholars who have studied Ecclesiastes, they, they believe uh, that the author is King Solomon. And we can take a look at many of the things that we see in Solomon's life and uh, his rule throughout his kingdom. And we can see a lot of that would line up. So um, I tend to be a, a person who believes that Solomon wrote this, uh, as most uh, scholars do. Uh, when we look at Ecclesiastes, we need to be mindful that what we're looking at is a part of the wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so when you, when you read wisdom literature, you have to remember that it doesn't always, it's not an always a linear thought. You know, it's like here's a piece and here's a piece and here's a piece and they're very segmented uh, in uh, their thought processes. Uh, but the purpose, the ultimate purpose of this book is to show the futility of living a life um, focusing only on worldly things. Right? If, if we think of only the things uh, that are under the sun, and that's how we live our life and how we focus our life, then we're going to find our lives being vain. We're going to find them being futile. It's going to be meaningless. Uh, by worldly things, we're talking about good and gracious gifts from God oftentimes. Right? You've got things like he has mentioned, wisdom. Things like pleasure, things like possessions, uh, the ability to work and have achievement, right? Justice. All of these things are good and gracious gifts from a loving Father, right? But if we elevate those things to ultimate things, they're ultimately going to end up failing us, right? He says it's like chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities. It's absolutely futile, right? <clears throat> These are some of the things that Solomon has pursued in his life. He pursued after pleasure. He pursued after possessions. He pursued after accolade. And after pursuing these things, he has found himself wanting. Right? Because these things are not what will fulfill him in the long run. Right? As you pursue these things, you desire to get something significant out of them. And eventually you're going to end up seeing that you were made for things greater than this. Right? They all end up lacking something that lasts beyond itself. For example, when we pursue wisdom, we see that it is futile because the wise die just as the fool dies. Right? Solomon says that there's nothing to be gained from wisdom in this life except for the fact that it saves you from some bumps and bruises along the way. Right? A moron has a harder time in this life. Right? They struggle because they aren't wise enough to stay out of trouble as they make their way to the grave, right? So your, your wisdom might keep you from having those bumps and bruises. They may keep you from stumbling into the trouble that the fool ends up stumbling into, but at the end of your life, you will both stumble into the grave. And that makes wisdom futile because you can't outsmart death, 
right? The pursuit of pleasure and possessions is futile because the happiness of having those things never lasts. We may get that short burst of excitement. Uh, you know, you purchase the new car, you purchase the new house, you purchase the new phone or whatever it is that is your specific thing. Like I felt a burst of pleasure when I bought a new table saw and now it's just a thing that cuts wood, right? Like eventually it loses the luster, it loses the shine and becomes just part of the old things. And now you're starting to think about, hey, what's next? What can I get after this? And it never lasts. Solomon says ultimately that our work is futile because death is inevitable and you're going to give everything that you have worked for away to someone else. And Solomon says that person might be an idiot. He says, you may be giving all your hard work away to a fool, and you don't know if they're going to value the things that you valued. You're not, you don't know if they're going to even be able to be capable of handling what you've given to them. And so all that hard work could come to nothing. The legacy that you have tried to leave may end up going up in smoke. So this has been a very sobering book all around. No matter where you turn to find meaning under the sun, which is a, a refrain that is said over and over again, I think it's 28 different times in these 12 chapters, Solomon talks about looking for things under the sun. If you are looking for that outside of a relationship with God, it's never going to fully work out for you. You're always going to find it coming up empty and wanting. And even then, in our efforts to have relationship with God, Right? Sometimes we can mess that up as well. Right? This morning, Solomon's going to hold up some of the activity that's often associated with our relationship with God. Specifically, three things he's going to talk about coming into God's presence. He's going to be talking about praying. And he's going to be talking about making vows. And in these efforts right, to come into the presence of God, to have that relationship with the Lord, he's going to give us some warnings on how we should handle that in, chap in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. So we're going to read that, but before we do that, I want to pray as we get into our time in the Word. Lord, we come before you grateful for your Scriptures. We know that we can trust them, that they are the ultimate authority by which we can seek you and live our lives, and know that we are within your will. And I pray as we open the word today and as we look at how we can uh, pursue relationship with you that our eyes would be open to the truth about how we come before you, about what we seek as we s spend time in relationship with you. And Lord, where we fall short, please both forgive us and help, help us overcome these things in our lives. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So follow along with me as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. It says there, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? 
For many dreams bring futility, and so do many words. Therefore, fear God. So the first thing that Solomon is warning us about in this passage is the attitude that we have when we approach God. Right in verse 1, he says that we need to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. It's better to approach God in obedience than come with the sacrifice of fools. Well, what's he say, what, why is he saying this? What does he mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we are informed repeatedly that God is holy and that he is not to be approached casually. Right? We can only approach God in ways that he approves. He says we can come in this fashion, and that is the only fashion in which we are able to do that. And we're given many instances in Scripture where God has set up boundaries and restrictions on how people are to come near to Him. For example, when God reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, He makes Moses take his sandals off because the ground that he is walking on is holy. Another instance in Exodus chapter 9 is in chapter 19, God's presence is coming presence is coming to rest on Mount Sinai so that Moses can learn about the law. And God says this to Moses in verses 9 to 13. He says, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the presence of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up to the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not uh, live, whether animal or human. When that ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. So even if you touch a mountain that God is touching, then you will die. And even then, you must be killed at a distance because no one else is allowed to touch you. Right? This boundary that he's put up is so strict that if you were to touch that mountain while his cloud is on it, then they had to kill you with rocks or with arrows because they weren't allowed to touch you after you had touched the mountain. Right? There's another instance of being in God's presence found in Exodus 33, which shows Moses begging God to see his glory. Right? They're, they're moving towards the promised land. And God informs Moses, he says, I want to see your glory. And he says to Moses, humans cannot see my glory and live. So if he were to reveal his divine nature to Moses in that moment, he would have been obliterated. There was no way that he could see his glory. And so he puts him in the crevice of the mountain, covers it with his hand, walks past, and he gets to look at God's back. You know, he got to see the, the tail end of the glory, as it were. Right? If we fast forward from this to Isaiah chapter 6, we see there a vision where Isaiah comes into the presence of the throne room of God. Right? In that vision, Isaiah sees God seated on a throne, high and lofty. Around him were angels who were constantly calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah sees this and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he was done. Because he came into the presence of the Lord, he thought he was done. 
And even the fact that he was seeing God in this vision required an angel to bring a burning coal taken from the altar in the throne room and he applied it to Isaiah's mouth. He then tells him, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Sinful people cannot and should not casually approach a holy and righteous God. If we do, it does not end well for us. But God wants relationship with us. And therefore, He's made ways for us to approach Him. In the Old Testament, the means of approaching God were found through the sacrificial system. Anyone who's read through the book of Leviticus, you've seen the extensive extensive actions that are required to be in that relationship with God. There's a long, long list of things that you have to do. If you break this rule, or if you break that rule, if you've touched this unclean thing, there's five steps that you have to do and sometimes you just have to remain outside the camp for a specific amount of time until you are considered clean again right there were lots and lots of animals that were killed and a lot of blood that was spilled in order to partially atone for our sin Right in the New Testament, we find that Jesus has been sent as the ultimate sacrifice to atone for our sin. He lives perfectly the life that we could not live. He dies on our behalf. And if we put our faith on him, then his blood covers our sin. And we no longer require sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. We've got a one and done sacrifice in the, present, in the person of Jesus. Uh, but in the end, it's not sacrifice that God wants at all. He doesn't want the sacrifice. He wants obedience. He wants people that listen to Him and do what He has told us to do. He wants us to live according to His law. He wants us to live according to His nature and His character. He doesn't want the blood of all these animals. He doesn't want the bodies of all these animals. He wants us to do what He tells us to do. Solomon points this out in verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Don't come in casually. Strive for obedience rather than taking the route of fools who do wrong and have to approach with a sacrifice. And so let me ask you this question. How do you approach God? Right As you were preparing today to come here for worship, how were you thinking about coming before God today? Right? It's different for us because this is not, I don't, I don't know how many of you have this mindset or how many times you have heard this, this is not God's house. Okay, This is where the people of God come to worship God. Right? But God does not dwell here. It's not like in the temple. Right? So we, we have a different mindset about coming before the presence of God, but we have, we have to think about how we think about God. Uh, author and theologian A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is it the most important thing about us? Because whatever comes to mind when you think about God, it, it will impact how you worship. It will change the way you think about who God is and what He expects of you. Right, for example, if your only consideration of God, when, when you think about God and the only thing that comes into your mind is that God is love, right? that's it. That's the only uh, piece of His personality that matters. right? Then you can do whatever you want because God loves you. 
And He's going to let you do whatever, he, whatever you want to. Right? It's a horrible misconception of love, especially considering that humanity is cursed with an inherent sin nature because what we want is often what's the worst for us. And it would be an unloving act for God to just allow us to go after that which is bad for us. But this is often the way people think about God and think about their sin. It doesn't matter that God said not to do these things because He loves me. Or on the flip side, it doesn't matter that God said to do these things. Right where we don't do what we're told to do because God loves me. So He's not going to care one way or another whether I obey Him as long as we're happy. Or let's say He does care. Let's say that it does matter. And he, He'll inevitably forgive me because He loves me. So you don't have to follow God's clear commands in Scripture because He loves you. He will eventually forgive you for willfully breaking His commandments. That's a terrible concept of love, but it's something that I hear all the time. When people think about God being love, you can live your life however you want with no consequence. Right? It blatantly disregards the holiness and the righteousness of God. But on the flip side of that, right? what, what if what comes to mind when you think about God is nothing but hellfire and damnation? Right? I'm sure you've seen the the pastors that preach that, beating the Bible on the pulpit, spitting out condemnation on everyone that's around. If that's the case, if that's how you think about God, then you may live your life in constant fear. Right? You might have, you bring out the checkbox because, you know, I don't want God to be mad at me, so I'll go to church, I'll give my offering, I'll serve, I'll do all this stuff. But you don't do it out of affection for the Lord, you do it out of fear. And there should be some of that, right? We should fear the Lord. It says that's the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom when we fear God. But we should not be trembling when we think about the idea of if I do this incorrectly, God is going to smite me. That's why we need to approach God in a balanced view. Right? All of that is true. God is holy and righteous. God is loving and merciful and offers us grace. We see the outcome of that balance in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Right? The holy, holiness and righteousness of God is vindicated in the punishment of sin. So when Jesus goes to the cross and God pours His wrath out on Jesus, then all of it is taken in. And all sin that is repented of has been paid for by Christ. And then we see the love and the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus' willingness to take our place in that punishment. So Jesus takes our iniquity and He gives us as a free, gracious gift His righteousness. Now as believers, we can approach God as our Father. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of promise. This is something that the Old Testament saints would have been all of. You can approach God as your father. Yeah. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I'm a co-heir with Christ. But this new type of relationship doesn't mean that we can now approach God in any way that we choose, though, right? Right? There still has to be an attitude of honor and respect and gratitude for who God is and what He has done. Like, for example, like, I don't require my kids to call me sir. 
Right? I'm daddy, not sir. I'm not in I'm not in the military. But they better not call me Chris. Hey, go clean your room. I don't expect them to go, yes, sir, and then and then walk off. But they better not look at me and go, yeah, Chris, that's not happening. Right? There's got to be something in between those two. Right? They, they need to know that Daddy loves them. But they also need to know that if they call Daddy Chris, then there's going to be trouble in the Hamlin household. And they're not going to enjoy that. Out of this attitude of gratitude, out of this attitude of honor and respect for the Lord, we should strive to be obedient to all that God has called us to do. Right? We don't do the checklist because we fear what God will do to us. We do the checklist because we love God. I go to church because I love God. I go to church because I love His people. I pray because I love being in the presence of the Lord. I read His Word because I want to be in His presence. I want to know what He wants for my life. Why? Because I love Him. Jesus says, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you cannot claim to love God and then just do your own thing. You cannot claim to love God and just say, I'll live however I want and he'll forgive me for it. That is an attitude that does not coincide with the love of God. God prefers that we would approach him in obedience rather than having to do the sacrifice of fools. And the second thing that Solomon points out in this passage is how we talk to God. So part of our approach in coming before God involves our prayer lives. And it's important that we think well about who God is as we come before Him in prayer. Solomon says this about that in verse 2. He says, Do not be hasty to speak. Do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. Uh, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So Solomon is pointing out here that we should acknowledge and realize that God doesn't need to hear from us to know what's going on in our life. Right? He is omniscient, which is a fancy way of saying that He knows everything. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what has happened to you. There is nothing in this world that God does not already know. And therefore, there's no reason that we need to prepare these long speeches for the Lord, right? This doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't tell God all that is on our heart when we pray. It's not saying that we have to, we need to keep it short. It's just saying that we don't need to make it long, right? It doesn't have to be unnecessarily long and in depth, right? We can pray quite well, Lord, help me. And that's enough. When we don't have the words to say, we can simply cry out, help me. And God knows exactly what it means. He knows exactly what we need. We don't have to attempt to defend a dissertation when we go before the Lord. Lord, this is the desire of my heart. And here are the 15 reasons why you should give it to me. Now, we don't need to do that. Just present it before the Lord. God knows what's happening in our lives better than we do. And so we don't have to spend a great deal of time explaining all that's going on. Jesus gives us an example of how we should pray in Matthew 6, 5-13. through 13. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing out in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. 
Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debtors as we also have forgiven our forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that's just an example. I've heard some people say, hey, that's we should just pray this over and over and over again. This is the only prayer that we should ever pray. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's just giving us an example. Uh, but in that example, we see when we pray, we should honor God first and foremost. That should be the first thing that we do as we open our mouths or open our minds to pray. We should pray that His kingdom come and His will is done. Because there, no matter what we desire in this life, what is ultimately best for everyone and everything is for God's will to be done. Right? We make our requests known and we ask for forgiveness because there isn't a day that we go through this life where we haven't screwed up somewhere. Right? We've messed up. We have failed. As people have failed us. And so we ask that we would be forgiven as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And we ask for protection from temptation. Right? This is how we should think about our prayer. On top of that, knowing... What that we don't need to lay everything out for God. So on top of Him knowing it all already, right? we should also consider the fact that since we are finite humans, we also don't know exactly what we should be praying for in regard to our lives or in the lives of those around us. Right? We see or experience hardship and strife. We see what we define as needs and what we define as problems. And we think we know how it would best be fixed. And we take that before the Lord and we make that our request. <coughs> the thing is, God knows what's best for us in these situations. Right? Sometimes the very thing... <coughs> The very thing that we pray for is the worst thing that could happen for us. Right? How many any of y'all ever prayed to win the lottery? I mean, come on. Somebody has. Right? Maybe that's the very worst thing that could happen to you is for you to win the lottery. Maybe when you were younger you prayed to have this girlfriend or that boyfriend and that could be the very worst thing that could ever happen to you. Right? Maybe you've prayed for this job or that job and that could be the very worst thing that ever happened to you. Right? Sometimes when we pray that way, God says no because that's what's best for us. We may not understand it. It may not make any sense whatsoever. But God may tell us no because it's what's best in His overall plan for the redemption of this world. Sometimes it's the best that thing that we can do to go through hardship because that hardship refines us. That hardship shapes us into the image of Christ. God knows this, and that's why in Romans 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf because we don't know how to pray as we should. We have a very finite way of looking at things, and these glasses don't show us the beginning to the end as God sees it. 
Right, so we don't know what's best for us and for those who are around us. So as we pray for that which we want and that which we think would be best for us, the Holy Spirit actually goes before God and says, this is what they need. This is what they should have in this moment. Right? A pastor and author Tim Keller says this about prayer. In short, God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. If we knew what God knows, then our prayers would be perfect. And he will either give us what is best for us or give us what is best for us. Right? In his wisdom, Solomon knows that the best way to approach the Lord is with listening ears rather than a speaking tongue. Right, he even provides an illustration in verse 3 to make his point. Now, I, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't fully understand this illustration. I don't see how it ties in. I'm assuming it's a, a contextual thing that I don't fully wrap my head around. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when you're a pastor and you're teaching, sometimes your illustrations land, sometimes they don't. And I think maybe this one was one that I didn't understand. He says, just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. Uh, so... As far as I can tell, basically you can count on two things for sure. If you have a dream, actualizing that dream is going to be very difficult. It's going to require a lot of work. And on top of that, if you have a fool in your midst, they're going to talk a lot. So that's, that's the best I can do with that illustration. I don't, I don't know. Um, there it is. Uh, the last thing that Solomon wants to warn us about as we approach the Lord has to do with vows. All right. In verses 4 through 6, he says this, When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? So many times when we try to get what we want, we, we try to negotiate. Lord, if you will give me this thing that I want, I will do this for you. Lord, if you will just get me that job, then I will tithe 27% of everything that I get for the first year. And then we'll drop it back down because that's ridiculous. Right? All these different conditions before we present before the Lord. And Solomon says, if you make that vow, then you better keep that vow. You better do exactly what you have told God you will do no matter what the consequences of that vow may be, you better hold to the promise that you made. All right, Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. Nobody's making you make this vow. Nobody's asking you to add this onto the request that you are putting before the Lord. You are doing this of your own free will, and as you do that of your own free will, you need to keep with what you have said you will do. Right? Solomon said uh, in verse 6, do not tell the messenger, the one that comes to collect on that vow, that you said that as a mistake. Right? Mean what you say. Matthew 5, 33-37 says again, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, 
either by heaven or because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. Just make your request and keep your promises. I mean, it's best if we don't add these vows to our requests. But if we do, we need to be people of our word. We need to do what we tell God that we're going to do. So, again, I asked before what your mindset was before you came into the presence of the Lord today to worship. And I don't know about you, but many times the Hamblin household is absolutely chaotic when we try to go somewhere. It takes like 15 minutes to get the kids in the car takes an hour to get them all ready to go. Sometimes on Sunday morning, our thoughts are not necessarily, oh man, I cannot wait to worship the Lord. It's like, I don't know if we're going to get out of here on time. Right? But what, what is your headspace when you think about coming into God's presence? Right? Do you just kind of saunter in as though you were owed something? Do you fear the Lord in a way that's unhealthy? In a way that you are expecting, you know, the thunderclap and the lightning bolt? How do you think about God when you come into his presence? We should both re be respectful and we should both realize that we have a relationship with, with the king of the universe based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We should both go into prayer knowing that he already knows everything that we will say and everything that we will think, everything that we will do. But we should also, we're commanded to pray for the things that we have needs of. And so there has to be a balance between what we want from God and what he already knows. And we should also have a balance in how we come before him with these vows. Right? If you make a promise to the Lord and he fulfills his end of that bargain, then you better keep your end of the bargain or else there may be consequences to pay. So let's think about that as we leave from this place. Think about how you interact with the Lord on a regular basis because we no longer have to come to the house of the Lord. We are the house of the Lord. As God's people on this side of the resurrection, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? So we need to be mindful of what we put inside of our brain, what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears. We need to be mindful of that because it affects how we interact with the Lord. So as you leave from this place today, think about that. If you are not thinking about God rightly in worship, change that about yourself. If you need help walking through that, let me know. We will study the scriptures together and we will make that to the point where you are thinking correctly about who God is and how you should approach him. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that we would think rightly about you and all that we do. That's a tall order given the fact that we are broken people, that we are people who constantly wander away in sin. But I pray that you would help us to overcome these things in our life that we would mature in our walk in this life and in our understanding of who you are so that uh, when we think of you we would think rightly and that we would pursue you in in right ways 
that we would approach you in obedience, not because there is anything that we can do to warrant our salvation, but because we love you so, so much that we want to do all that you have told us. And as we pray, Lord, I pray that there would be uh, a mindset of understanding and knowing that you know everything that we are going through, everything that we are experiencing, and we don't need to lay all of that out because just laying it out for you doesn't warrant anything uh, greater in that pursuit of prayer. And Lord, as we have uh, vows that we might be tempted to make, I pray that we would listen to the wisdom of Scripture and that we would just let our yeses be yes and our noes be no, and we would not pursue uh, tacking anything on to the requests that we make. Pray that we would understand that what you give us is what we need. Uh, help us to understand that as we leave this place today. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.